I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Well, it's always a pleasure, Ken. A few weeks ago, you explained how to frame a great deal which related to how you should structure the negotiation. And that got me thinking as to whether there might be a few more fundamental aspects at play, even before you begin negotiating. So perhaps you could walk us through what we'll call the anatomy of a great deal. Well, it's interesting you should raise that, Ken, because it's something that we talked about at some length in a recent uh, webinar for the mentor group I have. And I guess the place to begin is by breaking down a commercial property investment into its underlying components. You know, as you would expect, there is a, what we'll call a success equation, whether you're looking at a standalone building or a strata title unit. And you see, very few investors seem to spend enough time to grasp or fully understand what goes into a successful deal. And your success equation looks like this, that success equals E plus D plus I plus T. And that represents equity plus debt, plus ideas, plus time. So that, in essence, is what you've called the anatomy of a great deal. Okay, let's hear more about equity. All right, well, when you're first starting out with commercial property, most people assume that equity relates purely to the funds they have on hand. However, you don't need to be limited to simply cash that you currently have available. But what's more important is that every deal should stand alone from a financing perspective. In other words, you shouldn't cross-collateralise your properties. In other words, that they're all in one basket, and the banks love that, that they can then control what you borrow and, and buy from then on. And if you want to sell something to release some cash, sometimes they will take more of that and you've calculated to have a certain amount available to go and do something and they want to pay down some loans. So it's important they stand alone. So let's explore your credit options. Firstly, there's a line of credit, say on your family home or another residential property, which may provide all or part of the equity you need for the next commercial property purchase. Alternatively, you might refinance some earlier commercial purchases if you have them to release some of the value that's been built up. Now, with for vacant properties, if you're seeking a... What you can do is to to go for a longer settlement, say a a 180-day settlement, but with the right to have access after 30 days for the purposes of leasing and even refurbishing And it may require you to pay a little bit more deposit. They may say instead of the normal 10%, you've got to pump it up to 20, maybe 25%. But then it means that when you come to borrow the money, if you've got a tenant in there and you've tricked it up a little bit, it'll be valued based on the rent that you've achieved and the lease term that you've got in place. 
So, you know, there are clever ways you can do that. So you actually, right at the outset, put a bit of sweat equity into the deal. And then, you know, it's a bit hard at the moment, but when the market gets tough, sometimes you can ask vendors to leave some money in the deal by way of a second mortgage. For example, they might leave in 25%, you borrow 70%, and you only have to put in 12% in cash, and that should cover your acquisition costs as well. So there are a couple of little alternatives as to how to arrive at the equity component. Now, what about debt? Well, for each new purpose, purchase, I mean, the your lender generally doesn't care too much where you get your equity. In other words, the 30% of the current price, where it actually comes from. So long as the income from the property provides at least 1.2 times the coverage for your interest payments as far as their loan is concerned. However, when you're arranging your finance, it's important to pay particular attention to the loan structure. So maybe we should look at a, a couple of alternatives here because there are several things you need to keep in mind, like not simply focusing on the rates and the fees. You want to build in flexibility for the future. And as I think we've discussed in the past, you need to take control of the valuation process so that you're not at the the beck and call of the financier. So whether you're applying directly or through a bank using a broker, there's a few tips that we can perhaps provide as far as the the financing are concerned. We may have mentioned this in the past, but make sure your loan application is very comprehensive. If you go to a broker, they can give you a checklist, things you've got to keep in mind when preparing it, that sort of documentation. and you know, some investors, when you borrow frequently, get a, a finance pack put together that 80% of it is standard for the application and then you tweak it to the relative property that's involved. The other thing is, when you're going for finance, just make sure you're available. I mean, it's not that it should take over your life, but you don't want to be going on a, an overseas holiday during the settlement period for a property because with commercial finance you'll be required to sign documents and may need to get financial and legal advice in order to do so to do with the structure and tax and things like that so it's pretty hard you know to you're in UK and and the deals here in Australia so you know that's important and also make sure your advisors are on standby so they can review the documents as they're they're generated and presented to you and as we said take charge of the valuation in other words you're the one that instructs it you own it until your finance broker has um, got the commercial terms that everyone's happy with and then the documentation that follows that again your finance broker's been through it and made sure there are no nasty surprises and only then once everyone's happy, do you arrange to have the valuer assign the valuation across to the lender? And that way, you're in control. And it's not unreasonable to seek updates from the lender on a on an ongoing basis. I mean, don't be frightened of asking questions. I mean, just because they, they're lending the money, 
they're still obliged to keep you posted on what's happening. And that may happen through the finance broker if you're using one, and I would suggest you do. So those are the sort of things to look at. Now, maybe we might quickly look at some of the things a lender might require from you. There are a couple of things, and this goes to security, a fixed or a floating charge. And, and generally, they do that over a company. And um, you may, depending on how much money you're borrowing, they may require that to provide the additional security if the property is not quite up to shape. But it's probably something you want to avoid because, you know, you don't want a floating charge over your business because that impacts on what you do with that. So it comes back to, again, this issue of cross-collateralisation. You just want the property really to stand alone. And this is, again, where they may require personal guarantees. Now, that's a philosophical decision you've got to make. If it is in a company, which even if it's in a trust, they will require personal guarantees and and you probably should have a a corporate trustee anyway. So there will be director's guarantees required. Now, the different course types of guarantees... There are joint and several guarantees, and that's where the bank takes multiple personal guarantees for a debt. So in other words, if one party can't pay their part, the other parties have to take responsibility for it. And then there's several guarantees, and that means that it's only the particular guarantor that is responsible for his or her amount, and it doesn't flow to anybody else. But... Probably the better one would be what's called non-recourse finance. And that's where the property is the sole security for the loan being undertaken. Now, you can't borrow as much. In other words, you probably will have to be content with 65% borrowing. But if there are several parties going into a deal, it's better to do that and have people raise a little more equity either through, if they don't have enough cash through a line of credit elsewhere external to the property so they are personally responsible for that and then as far as the finance for the property is concerned there are no guarantees, personal guarantees provided because you are borrowing no more than 65% and therefore it is what's known as non-recourse finance. So if anything untoward, God forbid, happens to the property, the financiers cannot come to the various individuals to seek recompense for any shortfall. So hopefully that covers the the debt side of this equation that we talked about. You also mentioned ideas as a key aspect. Okay. Well, in the investment objectives, we talked about super growth and super growth is where you are able to add value to a property over and above what the market might deliver during the course of your ownership. Now, we talked initially before a way of of boosting your equity by having a longer settlement and doing something clever quickly, which doesn't cost much money, and finding a tenant for a vacant property. 
but let's assume the property is already already leased. So what you're looking for with some properties by doing your research is to find one that where the rent is slightly below market and it may be that the vendor's owned it for a while and is not aware of that. Now, it might only be 5 or 10% below, but that's money in your pocket. If you can, at the next rent review, assuming it's a market review, can claw back that shortfall and bring it up to market level because there's two ways you get an increase in growth. Increasing rents and falling yields. Now, as the market improves, the yields will fall, they'll tighten. But it's up to you to extract as much rent as you can out of the property legitimately. Now, one of the ways of doing that is to undertake planned or progressive upgrading during your ownership. Now, again, if you have a a master plan and do things bit by bit, it then becomes deductible as a maintenance issue. Now, it's not maintenance in the strict sense that something the tenant might be responsible for, but it may be that you can have a a, um, progressive maintenance schedule and by spreading some of the expenses over one or two or more financial years, instead of being a lump sum in one financial year, which could be deemed a capital expense, you can, in fact, spread it over several financial years and have it deductible as far as your tax returns concern. Now, the old favourite is subdividing one title into two or smaller components. Um, sometimes identifying a change of use opportunities to generate higher net income basically from the same property. It's just a subtle shift in, in use. It may be an emerging trend that your property would well suit and if a lease falls due, it might be only cosmetic changes that need to be made, but by introducing this alternate use, you might be able to get 10 15% more rent. Naming rights are something. If you've got a building that has multiple tenants, one of them may like to give the perception to the public that they own the whole building or, or occupy the whole building or certainly it's their building, so to speak, and they will pay for the naming rights over and above what they pay as a tenant as rent. You might consider a communication tower on the roof. I'm not big on that because of there's adverse effects of those sort of things. And even if it's not real, the perception is it's a problem and, you know, cause a, be discouraging to future tenants. So, look, I'm sure you can come up with a lot more ideas, but they're just a few thought starters, and, and that's in the ideas category, which many of which will not cost you a lot to implement, but will have a significant effect on the bottom line. And finally, time. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, over time, property will increase. Now, if you've bought well and study the fundamentals so that you're not just lashing out and buying a property for the sake of finding a home for money that's hot in your hand, it will look up to you over time. And that's even if you do nothing by way of any any value yourself. And again, it assumes you buy at the right time in the cycle. And, and we've talked before, at the moment in Sydney and Melbourne, we see the cycle peaking in the sort of 2019-2020 year. Brisbane and Perth, probably another three, four years after that because of where they are at the moment. So 
as I said, if you buy at or just above the bottom of the cycle, which is you know probably where we are at the moment, someone was asking me about a where we are on the clock. I don't use the clock so much, but if we call the bottom six in Sydney and Melbourne, you're probably at about seven or eight at the moment. So you're off the bottom and you've got a, a bit to go, probably another four years to go on the way up to the top. So it all comes down really to how your attitude towards property management. And, and you've got several choices. You know, for the lazy ones, it's file and forget. Just buy it, stick it in the thing, leave your managing agent, don't bother them, don't, don't ask any questions, don't try and do anything. The second one is to sort of maintain the property only when required, and some people do that. You know, begrudgingly they'll do maintenance. The next one is you maintain the property always in its original condition. And the fourth one, and the one I prefer, is to adopt an ongoing program for upgrading so that, yeah, it's good to keep it in its original condition, but I like to keep improving it and keeping it in ready-to-sell condition so that the next person looking at it says, there's nothing I have to do. It's all been done for me. Now, you know, if you consider yourself a bit of a Scrooge, you may well choose one of the first two options and probably try to manage the property yourself. But, you know, that could be pretty short-sighted and you might well fall short of some current-day statutory compliance requirements. So, you know, it's up to you. And I think you'll miss market opportunities, but you run a legal risk of significant fines as well. So my strong suggestion would be to engage a professional property manager, and that will allow you to implement and benefit from tax-deductible improvements, for which the market tends to reward you rather handsomely. So really, that probably sums it up. As I said, it's a success equation that I've used with my clients over the years and it's it's tended to reward them pretty well. It's not overly complicated, as I said, it's um, but it is something you have to do systematically. It's a game, it's a serious game. As long as you understand the rules and play by them, you'll come out of it looking pretty good. Okay, I'm happy now. Now that our listeners have the full story... Well, as I've probably said before, commercial property simply requires common sense, not rocket science. It's basically a game with its own set of rules, which you simply need to understand and then master. Anyway, look, thank you, Chris, for giving us this further insight into what's involved.